Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. to the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. We're very excited to have you here today. And we have a very special guest, old classmate of mine, Tanya Kennedy, who is uh, doing some great things up there in New York. We're very excited to have her. And uh, even though she's not in the real estate space, because she's one of the smartest women I've ever known, uh, I've actually had to bring her on. So, um, and I mean that literally, this girl is brilliant. So exciting to have her here. And uh, Tanya, what's happening, girl? How you doing? You are putting a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to say uh, good morning. It's great to see you. I, I thank you for the kind words. I'm, I'm not sure if I deserve all the all of them, but let me, say, Joel. I am so so proud of you. You are a rock star in your field, and also you are an awesome family man. Uh, uh, a great representation of black husbands and Black fathers. I certainly appreciate you. Oh, wow. Well, thank you, Tanya. I didn't expect sure. that. So now I'm under pressure, too. So <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Wow. So I appreciate that. But that was very kind. So, um, but yeah, so let, let's go ahead and jump in. I know we're getting started a little bit late. That's, uh, you know, some technical issues here. But, you know, it's been a long way. For, for everybody who doesn't know, Tanya and I were, were classmates back in high school, believe it or not. And uh, we've seen each other grow over the years. And all of a sudden, this light shining beacon was uh came on the scene it was like wow tanya's really does some great things so tanya what exactly are you doing right now and um, you're not in the real estate space but you have a very prestigious position up there in new york what exactly are you doing well I, I'm, I'm very blessed and fortunate i've been on the bench now for a little over 15 years last year i was appointed to the appellate division first judicial department Supreme Court of the State of New York. I hear and decide criminal and civil appeals with other colleagues. And we hear appeals that arise out of cases from the Bronx and Manhattan. That's Bronx County, New York County, Manhattan, Supreme Court, both civil and criminal family court. The Court of Claims, that's the court involving cases dealing with the state of New York. Surrogates Court, that is the court dealing with affairs of uh, decedents, trust and estates. And I have to tell you that it is such a wonderful experience. The work is both intellectually stimulating and challenging. And I still believe that I'm in a season of learning. I was just appointed last July by the governor, and uh, it's it's just wonderful. It's been a wonderful, wonderful ride. Wow, wow. <clears throat> yeah, I, I can't even imagine how you can keep your head wrapped around all the different laws related to all those different types of cases. That's pretty impressive, you know, and, and I'm sure quite challenging. So how, how did all this happen? I mean, we just told folks that me and you have some shared history uh, back in the day, and... Um, you know, I know you, you wound up leaving tech, went to uh, Penn State, and, and how did things progress from there to get you to where you are today? Because one thing that we talk about on this show is is how minorities have been able to 
ascend to a higher, you know, statute. So how, how did this all come about? Sure. You know, I think my story can apply to, to anyone. And what I mean is that when I was an attorney working for the New York City Law Department, Office of the Corporation Counsel, I had a supervisor was a Black woman named Betty Lawrence Lewis. And she told me that I was going to be a judge. I have to tell you, I laughed at her. I laughed at her because I did not see myself in that position. So that just goes to show you that very often people see things in you that you do not see for yourself. That's why I think it's so important for all of us to speak life into others, no matter what the age, but particularly for young people, because I always say in order to be it, you have to see it. So whether it's real estate, whether it's banking, we have to share our stories and let others know, hey, if I did it, you can do it too. So it was certainly having those individuals, people who looked like me, and very often people who did not look like me. And they, they saw my potential and gave me an opportunity. They opened the door. And that's what it's going to take. Certainly hard work, education is important, but having both mentors and, and particularly sponsors, because those are the people that are in the room when you are not yeah. in the room yeah. to advocate for you, whether it's a promotion, whether it is an appointment, whether it's an invitation to join a committee. And that is what happened to me. That's fantastic. And, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head. In, in commercial real estate, minorities represent somewhere between 3 to 5% of this industry. But yet and still, it's one of the industries that generates the most revenue of anything out here that anybody can do other than maybe tech, you know? And so you, you don't generally see minorities at that level. And, and to your point, it has to be all races of people that, you know, see the value in you, things that you might not see in yourself and are willing to put that out there and put that forward and push you forward. So it's, uh, it's important not to burn any bridges and, um, you know, be, be fair with everyone and, uh, you know, Stay away from bias and other things. So very good points, Tony. So yeah, I just want to add one thing, yeah, if I can. You know, and, and that's why, you know, diversity, inclusion, and equity is so important, not just in the legal profession, but all professions. Mm -hmm. Certainly, we, we talk about diversity, having different groups of people, but it goes way beyond that. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about inclusion. How do you really embrace and recognize the various differences and incorporate them into the particular workspace and environment. Because certainly everyone can play a role. Everyone has talents, gifts, and skills and how to successfully incorporate that and allow these individuals to grow and to advance. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's very important. It's all part of the puzzle that has to come together to take people to the next level. <clears throat> you know, but you talk about being able to to see, um, you know, advancement of, of individuals. And, 
you know, before we started recording, you were talking about how the, you know, the, the back in the day music and all the rest of it and, and how we were talking over the weekend, these folks are finally getting their props. And I remember mentioning how you look at, if you look at the A train for an example, right? It stops on 125th Street, which is Harlem, which has been, you know, it's changed now, but for so many years it was demoralized. And the next stop is Billionaire's Row at 59th Street, right? I mean, think about that. One train stop away and getting still, it's a world away for so many people where you have the ultra rich and people who feel like they can't never change their course of life because they've never seen anything different and they think that this is just the way it is. One train stop away. So it's really amazing. But to your point, it's a matter of not just looking for handouts, but putting the work in and, and making sure you can benefit from that as well. I, I want to go even further because I think it also has to do with certain culture and values. Mm -hmm. As you said, the, the homeless population has so increased over the last years. And, and unfortunately, we know what has happened with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Mm -hmm. so certainly, there must be a call for more affordable housing. Mm -hmm. We know the role that gentrification has, has played. And the New York Times had a wonderful, wonderful piece this weekend regarding Black ownership. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and focused on the issues about Redline, redlining, uh, the areas regarding gentrification, how certain areas, it was only Black folk mm -hmm. who lived there. Now there are others, but then the prices go up and it's very unlikely that people who look like you and I will be able to afford these areas. Yeah. You know, Tanya, that's actually happening all over the country. Right. One of the biggest things, you know, being in that space with developers day in and day out, you know, the question is, how can we make sure that a lot of these developments do include affordable housing so that people aren't priced out, at least have some units available, you know, for those individuals? And it's a work in progress uh, because if it wasn't for that, everything would just be market rate. And it's like, if you can't afford it, then you can't stay here, period. You know, and you got to go. And that's really unfortunate because the, the culture of communities just disintegrate when you don't um, uh, maintain that, that type of affordability in particular areas. So appreciate you bringing that out. That's a, a really big area and something that we deal with all the time. Yeah, I mean, I live in Harlem. And let me just say, I benefited from the fact that when I started my legal career, I worked in the public sector. Mm -hmm. My salary was a bit low. So I qualify for a low equity co-op, which is where I live now. It is lovely. And as a matter of fact, my building was the first of its, of its kind. And then four years later, there was a sister co-op. Mm -hmm. And after that, the development just took off. And I, I'm very fortunate that I have to give a shout out to my mother, who, you know, a mother's wisdom. Mm -hmm. So I added the Daily News and said, I think you should apply. And one of the best decisions that I made, certainly listening to my mother and following up on that. 
Yeah, yeah. Changes. I've seen the changes. Yeah. You're you're in a great spot, so I won't go any deeper on that, but <laughs> but yeah, your, your, your property values are gonna do really well, and I'm sure they have. So that's a great thing. So um let's shift gears a little bit because this is a, a deeper subject, and you know as well as I that there are a lot of young people that were our same age and, and others that had made mistakes when they were young, did stupid things, got wrapped up in situations. You even look at so many of the ones that went to jail for nickel bags and now it's legal in so many places that it's just like, I mean, it's amazing, you know, and so many years of these individuals' lives have been wasted. But what I wanted to ask you is, is more so on the back end of that. You know, with people coming out of the system, are there uh, rehabilitation projects and, and other things that are available that can maybe teach these ones commercial real estate or other trades that will allow them to advance themselves going forward? And, and how could the industry help? Sure. You know, I know of one program that this is not really my forte, but, you know, there are a number of programs, for example, in New York. I know that there's an organization, I believe it's called Exodus that is not too far from where I live, mm-hmm. East Harlem, that provides training and employment opportunities to those who are formerly incarcerated. There's another organization, I believe it's the Fortune Society, mm-hmm. which is also in Harlem, that provides similar services. But the bottom line is not only rehabilitation, but certainly having the proper opportunities for training and employment. Because unfortunately, I I think that many have turned to the criminal justice system because of a a lack of opportunity. Did not have anyone to say, you're smart, you're brilliant, you can be this, you you can be, be that. Of course, some of it was just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. But I really believe that once people leave the various jails and prisons, you have to provide opportunities for them to become productive members of society. Otherwise, it's just going to be a rotating door. Yeah, yeah. That's a valid point. You know, and, and just thinking back, I remember as a, as a young guy growing up, you know, it was the only way to really get out of the ghetto, if you will, or, or a rough situation was basically through drugs or sports. I mean, that was the mindset, you know, and then hip hop came along and it was like, well, maybe you could do hip hop. Right. So you had three things, but you never, you know, and that's kind of why I brought up the point about Harlem being one stop from Billionaire's Road, because even though it was so close, it was miles away. It was like from here to Mars. You know, the mindset of people. And so part of the mindset of individuals has to change in order to reindoctrinate themselves into what they can become as opposed to what their past has been and thinking that that's the only solution. You know, but what, what's interesting about that, though, is, is the, the, the changing of the mindset that has to take place. And, and Tanya, I think you were talking about that, how you, people have to see something different to believe they can be something different. You know what I mean? True. And, and, you know, and I want to take it back to last summer, if I may. Certainly, the the killing of George Floyd, I I think, just turned this nation and world just topsy-turvy and made everyone 
more sensitive regarding the need to enhance one's civic engagement. The fact that it happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, where everyone was on lockdown, certainly there were many of us who already knew the inequities in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. But certainly COVID-19 really shined a light on the various inequities, coupled with the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rashad Brooks in your backyard. Mm -hmm. So there was a greater sensitivity, I believe, regarding the need for racial equality, social justice, really calling on the leaders, corporations, elected officials, judges, to really look at this. And I was so happy when I saw people who did not look like us, Mm -hmm. okay? particularly young people, people in the Gen Z population, the millennials marching along Central Park, because I don't live too far, I I can walk there, with signs that said, Black Lives Matter, celebrating Juneteenth. It's really going to take a collective effort to ensure diversity, inclusion, and equity. And I'm so happy that those in the white community are beginning to understand the issue of white privilege Mm -hmm. and to know the importance of them being our allies. We're really all in this together. I know that there are other efforts going on, to counteract that. But I do believe, I do have hope that although things may seem dire and we know what's going on, that there are enough individuals out there that are are more knowledgeable. And if they're not, they're eager to learn about how I can play a role. So I think things are changing, but people have to be engaged and stay engaged. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate you bringing that out. Uh, let me do this because I really want to go a little bit deeper on what you just brought out. Uh, yeah. Again, that, that's a, a subject that affects our industry as well on the real estate side. But I want to open it up to uh, questions. We're going to do this a little bit earlier uh, this time because Tanya has to uh, jump off at, a, at an earlier, well, you know, at a, she's got a whole stop coming up. So I want to go ahead and open that up so you can put your questions in the chat or you can raise your hand and we'll be happy to uh, answer those and and get your involvement here in the discussion. But while we're waiting on those questions to come in, Tanya, let's talk about that because one of the things that has frustrated many minorities that are focused on real estate, for an example, and again, this this is a broad subject of of every uh, industry that's out there because there's minorities trying to make advancement in every industry, it's not just real estate. But with it being a real estate show, obviously I know more about that. One of the biggest issues that we've had is, you mentioned inclusion and it's the access to capital. You know, so you're trying to get a deal done and you can't get access to capital. And what happens a lot of times is that the sponsors of these deals may have a grandfather or an uncle or somebody that they know very closely 
that says, yeah, I'll stand behind it and make sure that everything happens right and that the deal gets done. Or they're able to form these partnerships with some other white group who has done it before and has that track record. And, you know, they're able to make things happen from that standpoint. But if you're a minority and don't have those relationships and your father hasn't been in the game and all that type of thing, you're locked out. So how do we continue to make sure that corporations and other entities are, you know, putting their money where they're out there? You know, they're saying that all this money has been set aside. Is it really happening? Will it happen? You know, how do we make sure that that's just going to take place? And, you know, the, the news died, the news um, story is not going to change. And then all of a sudden, everybody forgets about it again. And that money just goes right back the way it was before. Yeah. So I'm going to answer it this way. And, and these are some of the answers that I have given with respect to diversity and inclusion as it relates to the legal profession. So as I said, in order to be it, you have to see it. Mm-hmm. So one thing I pose to you is including younger people, letting them know that these type of careers exist. Mm-hmm. Volunteer internship opportunities. Certainly, I know that there's a larger real estate organization, a majority, and I'm sure then you have affinity real estate organizations involving perhaps persons of color, women. And I want to know, certainly, are you members not only of those infinity groups, but the larger majority organizations and asserting yourselves, mm-hmm. becoming active. I know that there are various newsletters and blogs writing the art articles seeing if there are opportunities to partner. Mm-hmm. And certainly as it relates to capital, right? That maybe two or three of you or more will have to pull resources together. And then the various clients that you work for, or I should say work with your various stakeholders, putting the questions because now, and I'll give you an example, the clients of the law firms, they want to know, do you have diverse legal teams? That's a requirement. Wow. Same thing with corporations. They are calling them to the carpet to say, do, do you have a diverse team? Mm-hmm. Things like that, you know, I, I think could be done, not only in real estate, as I said, I think it's in any Mm -hmm. organization, but these leaders, you you have to call them to the carpet and then perhaps create metrics. If they say we're going to do X, all right, well, then let's measure that. Have you done it? What are the benchmarks in order for you to get there? Yeah, you know, that's that's funny. I I think you've been uh, looking over my shoulder. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There is a, uh, a a posting that's actually going to be coming out today that we're doing in unison with uh, Rutgers University. That's exactly what it is. We're, we're going to be polling people to uh, get an idea as to whether they've been benefactors of the, these uh, uh, initiatives and other things. And, you know, whether people, whether e- even the perception of it, you know, because there's a lot being said, but the perception of people might be that these corporations aren't doing what they say they're doing. 
And so we're kind of diving into that. And so Rutgers University has uh, agreed to participate with us in this study. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that, but you're exactly right. And we're thinking the exact same way in that regard. Let me get one of the uh, questions here. Uriah, I don't know if you're in a position where you could ask your question. We would love for you to um, just go ahead and, and voice it directly. If you are, there you go, you're unmuted. So you mind uh, asking your question, Uriah? Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Good morning Your, Your Honor. I have Good a question. What, what, are, what are some ways to proactively counter what I deem gentrification tactics that are facilitated and employed by local tax entities that have a negative impact on Black families? To put it a bit more into context, I've lived in Atlanta for 10 years. I've lived in Chicago, Denver, Dallas, and I've always seen this, this dynamic where Local tax commissioners in their in their offices, they go into predominantly black neighborhoods and they take the values of properties purchased by non-black families and use that as a new benchmark to accelerate the property appraisals for that local community. So much so that over the next, let's say typically two to three to five years, the tax assessments on those properties become so high that the existing Black families are not able to afford it, thereby creating this transition to properties going into tax liens, et cetera, thereby losing their properties. So I've seen that happen time and time again. Um, I even live in a, in a neighborhood now where I see that currently occurring. So I'm just curious to know, what are some ways to counter those gentrification tactics that are embedded into the fabric of the local county legal system and the tax system that enable them to accelerate the property taxes, thereby in disenabling black families to be able to afford their properties from a tax standpoint. I'm gonna answer it this way, but before I do, let me say that Atlanta is one of my favorite cities. I was there a couple of months ago. Now, uh, judges are not supposed to be biased, but I am. You know, New York is the best place to live, but there are a lot of close seconds like Atlanta. So you're, you're, you're in there, Atlanta and Chicago. Uh, two of my favorites. I'm going to answer it this way because I really can't speak on that. That's not really within my wheelbarrow. But I believe that this answer that I will give applies to you and to everyone on the line. All of us, and I'm really going to say all of you, have so much power that I don't think, well, maybe you do realize it. And it's the power of the vote. Now, as a judge, I am ethically prohibited from engaging in politics and partisan activity. So my answer is not about a particular political party or a particular candidate. But the bottom line is this. Judges have a daily impact on the lives of persons in the community. Judges can be either elected or appointed. I was an elected judge. So this answer really is more towards those who are elected, but I'll come back to the appointed route because I'm going somewhere with this. Very often when we're voting for judges, we don't know who they are, their background, their qualifications, when judges are the ones 
who interpret the law, uphold the law. And, and to me, I think that the community would want to know who are the judges? You know, are they sensitive to the needs of the community? Now, let me take it to elected officials, the ones who enact laws or the ones who do not enact laws. And then the ones who enforce, uphold the laws. And so once again, it, it, it's about civic engagement. If you want something to happen in, in your community or not, are we going to community board meetings? I don't know what the equivalent would be in Atlanta, but th these are the issues. And so when Joe and I were talking about this issue of homelessness, are, are these the issues that we're bringing before our representatives to let them know these are the issues that are important to us? And may I even go further <laughs> to say, maybe there are people here on the line that may want to become actually involved. And what I mean by that, maybe running for office, may, you know, may, maybe identifying someone, but that is my answer. Now, I don't know if you're satisfied with that answer, but, 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 but I think it's very apropos to, to what you're, you're saying because there, there are different conditions that we're seeing that we either approve of or not. And this is how I see it about the community being more involved because remember, who you vote for has a lot to do with, as I said, the laws that are enacted or not. You know, do they have the same mindset with certain policies, certain issues, how the law is interpreted? So th that's my answer. And that, that applies to any situation. Absolutely. Thank, thank you, Your, Your Honor. One of the books Welcome. that I'm reading is a book called The Color of Law by Richard Roxy. I don't know if you had an opportunity to check it out. Can you repeat that for me? I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am. It's, it's called The Color of Law. Let me write that down. Hold on. And it's a uh, New York Times bestseller. Uh, Richard Rothstein is the author. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to check it out, but it is a eye-opening, mind-blowing book that really put into context um, some of the dynamics or the components of my question. So, but no, thank you for your answer. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for the uh, book referral. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't have any more books that I can fit on my bookshelf. So now I'm focusing on Audible and I'm listening, listening to White Fragility, Robin DeAngelo. Yes, I've seen that one. Right now. Okay, I got to check that one out. Thank you. Yep, you're welcome. All right, all right. Well, good job, Uriah. You got her attention. <laughs> so, good stuff, good stuff. No, we appreciate it. So it's, um, it's quite interesting how all this comes together. You know, this issue about gentrification is, is really a tough one because... What happens, people used to say, and this was actually a study that was on some news channel, I can't even remember right now, but it was an investigative report about how uh, a lot of white folks were saying blacks bring down the value of real estate in their communities, and that's why they're leaving. And the article brought out, or the story brought out that, well, it's you that's dropping the price of your house to get out. 
and you're dropping the price of your house, that's the new benchmark as to what the real estate values are worth. So who's really bringing the values down? You are, by dumping your house in order to leave because you don't want to live next to a certain ethnic group. You know, so it's, it's funny, but now the, the flip side of that is certain ones moving into a neighborhood and increasing property values, you know, because of that, but now squeezing out the ones that are actually there. So it's a, it's a strange dynamic as to how that actually plays out. The tax base and everything else is difficult. That's why I think the solution is, you know, affordable housing. But the problem with affordable housing also is the density issue. You know, you can't go into every neighborhood where there's, you know, maybe let's say 100 single family homes and build a thousand, you know, apartment units. Everybody's not going to want that. And now you can say, well, those hundred people can now live in my apartment building as affordable housing. But is that really right? I mean, that changes the whole complexity of the community. So it's a difficult issue, you know, but I appreciate you addressing that, Tanya, and giving your thoughts on that. Let me jump to uh, Jerry real quick. She had a question. Uh, Jerry, we appreciate you being here as always. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Joel. Okay, I uh, just want to say uh, thank you for coming on, Your Honor. It is a pleasure and an honor for us to have you and for us to be able to see you. You you get it? Like, to see <laughs> I get it. talked about. <laughs> we talked about being able to see ourselves, your appearance here, and your message will continue to perpetuate and be part of what you are speaking to as far as being visible. Two questions. One, you talked about the impact of culture. So one of the things that we seem to be as a people or people of color in our communities, not having a culture that values real estate the way that it could be valued. In your experience, how have you seen that that could be impacted so that we maintain our power through real estate as a part of our culture? First of all, I, I thank you for the kind words. And let me just say this. You know, when, when you said that it was, uh, uh, and I'm paraphrasing if I may, you know, a pleasure to see you. This is why it's so important to have diversity within the legal profession or any profession, but you know, I'll, I'll focus on the legal profession. The reason why is because when people are truly reflective of the community, when they see you, you understand. I believe, this is my personal opinion, it yields a greater respect and trust in the system, whether that's women, persons of color, people of different gender identities, orientation and the like. So I, I want to thank you for that. It's very interesting that you brought that up because I'm sure we've all, you know, read uh, the various articles or even some of the shows about declining Black ownership. For example, like in Martha's Vineyard, you know, you, you, you had homes that were passed down in generations and Sag Harbor, Right. For whatever reason, the younger generations no longer wish to carry on that tradition, even here in New York. And, and I really encourage you to look at that article. It's, it's, it's about maybe seven pages 
in the New York Times about Black ownership. It's, it's just really incredible. And the same thing that many of the children do not want to retain the brownstones. And I just think, this is just my personal opinion, it has nothing to do with my profession, right? That we weren't really trained in that. Some of us were, and I really have to commend those who were, you know, who understood the value. And I just think it's about, it's about education and, you know, various programs that I knew existed for increasing home ownership. I'm not that involved, but that's what it seems like to me. I mean, we, we, we know about the wealth gap, but where does that come from? It really comes from over 400 years of slavery, right? And, and the various communities that have benefited from that. And the that unfortunately, the Black community is still reeling from those effects. So that's my answer. I hope I've addressed the question. You have, I mean... And it's not just ownership, like home ownership too, you know, addressing everyone on the, the call in the commercial world, right? The power of ownership in commercial. Have impact. Yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. I just want to say something. And then, you know, we, we just have a certain mindset. Let's just be honest, right? That sometimes we won't frequent or patronize Black business. You know, mm. there, there has been this, myth that white is better. You know, they provide better services or they're too expensive. Well, maybe they are because they don't have the resources as others in the majority community. So it's about a mindset and it's about just, you know, taking action to say, hey, we have to support Black business. And I know that's going on, but, you know, more education and more partnerships. That's what I would say. Okay, thank you so much. You know what, I, I want to address one thing because you, you bring up an issue of, of research for myself. And uh, I know we're coming close to the end of our discussion here, but I looked into this personally when I was, uh, I was doing a lot in the area of financial education and financial literacy, uh, especially as it relates to real estate. And what I found was that the average white family buys their first home in their 20s and the average black family was buying their first home in their 30s. And in their 30s, the average white family was now in their second home. So by the time the Blacks were just getting started, and understand real estate generally makes up about 50% of a person's net worth, right? So if you don't have that and you're already 10 years behind, where is that going to show up down the road? You're always going to be behind, you see? And, And it's because of that way of thinking that it's not that important, or let me get my fancy car first or whatever the case was. And that was a, a dynamic that needed to change. And I noticed that statistically that the, the other, uh, well, the, the, the white families were generally much further ahead because they were buying real estate almost 10 years uh, before black families. Now, you take that and you translate that to commercial real estate. If you're not even thinking about buying your first home until you're in your 30s and you're looking at your second home, maybe in your 40s or 50s, you definitely ain't looking at commercial real estate. Right. Because that's a whole nother planet down the road. You know, you might start looking at buying some single family homes as a retirement package. So 
it's a matter of changing the dynamic in time. It, it goes back to the same thing we keep saying over and over again. People have to see it. The next generation has to see people doing these things in order to believe they could do it themselves and do things a little bit different. And I'll be honest, even, even having this podcast, um, I brought on some guests where I'm like, wow, you know, and it, it's even got my way of thinking a little bit different because of that. Um, and I'm in the space. So, you know, it's, it's a powerful thing. So Tanya, I certainly want to respect your time. And we're coming up on eight minutes. You said you got a hard stop. Uh, what else do you want us to know uh, before we, we shut it down for the day? You're, you're my very special guest today. I'm so happy to have you. I think it was a great call. I know you always call me when you come to Atlanta, but we don't always get a chance to get together. But um, what else do you want us to know that you think would be very valuable for our audience today and those ones that will be listening to this? I think I can't stress this enough. We live in such perilous times. But in spite of that, I have hope. I have hope that we will overcome. I really do. I know that there are a lot of um, misstatements out there, negativity, but in spite of that, if we just each do our own little act of, of pushing someone forward, of speaking the truth, of being engaged, things can turn around. I really believe that. We have to uh, be motivated, stay engaged. You know what I've already said about you having the power, exercising that power, asking questions, becoming involved, playing a role, speaking into the lives, not only young people, but perhaps people, people young at heart, like myself, you know, sharing information, pushing each other forward and upward, combining the resources, whether that's financial, whether that's informational. That's what I see. Forming key alliances and certainly broadening the network. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Technology has allowed us to do that. I mean, look, certainly I'm seeing, I can't count all the boxes real quick, but look, I'm, I'm being engaged with a number of people that I would not have otherwise been engaged with. And that's through technology. So there's some great things that are happening with technology and we have to leverage that. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's... um kind of how this even morphed into what it is today. You know, I want to thank Jerry and Uriah who uh, have kind of been on my back. They're like, you ought to turn this into a pocket. You ought to record this. And because I wasn't doing any of that. I was just like, hey, I'm just talking to a friend of mine. What's up? How you doing? <laughs> you know, and it just kind of grew into this. So, you know, I certainly want to thank them for that and, and for even pushing me to take this to the next level. And uh, if it wasn't for that and the technology, yeah, we were talking, you know, have a, a meal together or whatever, but we wouldn't be on this forum you know, talking about things that actually are more important than just, you know, who's doing what since school got out, right? <laughs> so, you know, this has been a beautiful thing. And um, any any concluding comments uh, before we, we get out of here? Well, listen, Joel, I mean, they know me as the Honorable Tanya R. Kennedy. You know me as TK and, and <laughs> will remain. 
right. You know what's funny is when I was when I was putting this out, I put out that TK, and she was like, "No, no, I'm the honorable." I was like, "All right, all right." But for you, I'm not even gonna flash the picture of us back in the day. So I know you, said you don't you don't want that out there, but yeah, uh, that's that's. Uh, that's a historic picture that we'll never forget. We look better now. I know. I know. How about that? <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Might be a little heavier, but, you know, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. We're alive and healthy. Absolutely. Well, TK, thank you so much for calling out a section of your day to, to be with us today. Uh, I'm sure everybody really appreciated it. We'll be getting this live pretty soon. And uh, you've been listening to Mornings with Joel CRE Podcast. We want to thank you very much for being here with us today. And to all, thank you very much. We look forward to having you back next week as well. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Order from the court. There you go. Thank you, Tanya. Bye-bye. Stay safe, everyone. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.